Hello and welcome to another episode of Bookends, the podcast for writers and book lovers. I'm Philippa Moore and my special guest for this episode is Ray Earle, author of My Mad Fat Diary and OMG, Is This Actually My Life? In 1989, Ray Earle was 17 and she wrote a diary while living with her mother and her mum's Moroccan bodybuilder boyfriend in a council house in Lincolnshire. Recently released from a psychiatric hospital, Ray was battling extreme anxiety, self-harm and OCD, as well as being, in her words, five foot stumpy four, pushing 14 and a half stone, with a lover that made me look pregnant but actually ensured that I would never ever become a teenage pregnancy statistic, food. Ray Earle's hilarious yet hard-hitting collection of diaries was first published in 2007 and have now been turned into a television drama, My Mad Fat Diary, which aired in the UK on E4 earlier this year, with a second series now in production. In a bizarre coincidence, Ray now lives in my hometown in Australia, and on a recent visit back home we had a wonderful chat about her books, about the events that inspired them, and her journey as a writer. I'm sure you'll all enjoy it, but first an excerpt from the book that started it all, Ray Earle, My Mad Fat Diary. It's Monday the 3rd of July, 1989. 7.55pm. Sorry about yesterday, I was feeling a bit down. In fact, I was feeling flat as a pancake. Mum would say I was overtired. So all I've done all day is lie on the sofa and read and watch telly. Read some of Mum's women's magazines. Lots of I did it articles about women who've eaten nothing for six months and lost 12 stone. My husband loves the new me, etc, etc, etc. Didn't he like the old you? Recipes for cheap, affordable stews. Problem pages about affairs and people who have shit husbands. Articles on Andrew Lloyd Webber. In TV Guide, there was a competition to win a date with Stefan Dennis, a.k.a. Paul Robinson from Neighbours. Why would anybody want to win that? Nobody has been round. I've eaten three bags of crisps. Everywhere you look, there are women moaning about men. On telly, Deirdre's finished moaning about Ken in Coronation Street. There's this song called Superwoman, where this woman is moaning that she does her husband a fry up early in the morning, but he never thanks her. It makes me wonder if they are worth it. But they are. They are. Anything is better than being left here without anyone or anything with a bloody multi-pack. really because in Tasmania nobody really knows who the hell I am and my working day really starts late it starts uh, well it doesn't but in terms of you know dealing with Britain my working day doesn't start till about six o'clock now at night so I have this sort of like odd existence of, of I know I'm you know obviously the name Rail's well known but here I'm not well known at all. I'm just Harry's mum or Kev's wife, which is it's kind of nice in a way because you're buffeted really from, you know, you just get the lovely stuff. I mean, yeah, it has been a, a long a long journey, but I think there's a lot to be said for that because when you when you get to 42, which I nearly am, you really appreciate people getting in touch. You really appreciate being well known, what it can do. I'm more settled in my life. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if it had happened when you were 25. You might not have... I think I would have totally appreciated it, but I'm, I'm just saying that I, this stage of life, I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. 
And the, I mean, I have to admit, there are lots of times I want to be back in Britain to really, really enjoy it. And that's tough because, you know, when it was on, obviously I was over here and it was, it was going on at 10 at night. So that's what, that was what with the time difference, that was like nine in the morning. But I'd sit on Twitter and I just love it because I'd almost watched the, the program with everybody else who was watching it. Mm. And that was, a, that was a wonderful experience because, you know, pretty uniformly people were lovely and they loved it. And, and they, would, they were very open in saying, we love the show. And it's, that's lovely to, you know, deal with. That's, 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 that's wonderful. So, but to be there would have been a real buzz. And I, I do miss that. But mm. hopefully, fingers crossed, I get, get my ticket sorted. Uh, I'm going to go back for the filming of series two. Where I really want to walk in the background somewhere. <laughs> just be lady in the background. <laughs> just hover. But I don't know if I should because, frankly, my acting is... Some of the worst of all time. You, you, might, you might have a cameo in series two. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> future version. <laughs> future. Ooh, No, I just, that just appeals to me. Just, uh, but I would love to, I'd love to go down and visit the set. And just. So how involved were you in the filming of series one? Not, not at all by the sound. Well, well, yes, I am, in the way that um, very much involved at the script stage. Yeah. Because um, Tom will obviously talk to me. Tom Bidwell's the writer. Tom will talk to me, talk to me at length, and then we have conferences about it over the phone, and, you know, they can go on for a while. You know, it's, it, in that respect, communication has made that part of it very, very easy. And Tom and me talked all the time, and me and the producer, Jude, talked all the time, and then they send me each script, and I go through them and, and get back to them with, with, with things that, you know, I've got comments on, and we go from there. So at that stage, I'm absolutely... A, a big part of it and it's wonderful but I have to say there's not much I mean Tom just got it from moment one freakily Tom got it from moment one it was like he was in my head the team behind it just everybody got it it's not often in life that you can say that it things are just perfect but they were just perfect there's nothing I'd change and that's being dead honest. there's nothing I would change and that's and that's a weird feeling because we always look don't we to there's something we can tweak, but no, it was, it was, Tom just got it, everybody just got it, director just got it, cast just got it, everybody just got it, so. So this is the E4 two. series, My Mad Fat Diary, that was based on your book, My yeah. Mad Fat Teenage Diary. Yeah. The biggest change from the book and the TV series was that the TV series is set in 1996, mm. whereas your book is set in 1989. How did you feel about that? What I'd learned from the book, being out, is that that teenage experience goes across every generation. So there were people telling me from the 60s they felt that way, from the 70s, from the 80s, and teenagers then and now were telling me this was their experience. So obviously I love the 80s, but to me it's, it could be set in 2247. I mean, obviously that would bring different problems of futuristic, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying we should, we should do My Mad Fat Diary sci-fi, I'm not saying that, but... The, the point is not the era, the point is the subject matter. Mm. And actually, the era they moved it to, I mean, we were just talking before about pulp. You know, you're talking about an era of music, again, that I absolutely love. That pulp and blur, I mean, blur's part life album and pulp's his and hers album, uh, they're more than music to me, they are, they're soundtracks. So the music in it is, is very evocative and... 
it, it just it, I'm not precious about the era. I'm precious about the subject matter and how that's handled. That would that makes me you know that's what I'm concerned about. And I think if they'd moved it to to, to 2012, I'd be a bit more lost with the music. But it'd still be. I mean, you know, it's still the issues that that matter because they're still relevant. Well, 1996 was actually when I was 15, and. I found actually watching that series incredibly... It was like being in a time machine mm. and being back in that experience. It was quite incredible. Was it a strange experience for you oh, seeing God. another ray come to life? It's completely surreal. I mean, that is surreal. Because I've got, <laughs> I've got this diary. This It's called 365 Questions. You, you Over a five-year period, you ask, answer a question every day. And it said... Who would play you in a film? And I was oh, well, that's happened. No, it has actually happened. <laughs> and, and, you know, from when I wrote that the first time, it's now happened. And obviously that's a very, that's an experience that most people won't get to have and that's a very, very surreal experience. So you're watching you. Yeah, it's me. It is me. I mean, Sharon is out of this world. She's superb. She's, she's got that, that me brilliantly. It's a superb performance out of this world. And uh, but it, it is me, but it's not me. Uh, do, you, do you understand what I mean? There's like there's like that rail, and there's like I can't. It's very difficult to explain. But it's me, but it's not me. If that makes sense. No, I, I do. Know yeah, yeah, yeah. When I showed my in-laws, they said, "Oh, you've got they've she's got your rolling eyes to a T." I thought that's not good that my in-laws have noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> but she, but she hasn't. The weird thing is, we've not even met. Really? Yeah, no, we've not met. Sharon and I have not met. We've talked a lot. Um, she's great. We've talked a lot. She's, she's a friend. She's a great friend now. Regarded as a great friend. Um, but we've not met. And yet she's, she's got that whole vibe. And my mum saw it and she thought it was absolutely fabulous. And my mum's very brave because there's obviously there's, there's stuff in there. That... Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when I wrote the book, I said, Mum... I'm going to write this book because me and my mum are very close now. She's very, she's like my best mate. She's very, very close. And um, she comes over every year for, th- for three months and we have a laugh. We still bicker at each other. We always will. But we're, we're very close. And I, and I see very differently that period now. But also you're now a mum yourself as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm now a mum myself. But also, and, and mum's quite, um, I've, I've said this elsewhere, but she's quite, mum has, a, has had uh, her own mental health issues in terms of that she's she's what we would call bipolar she prefers manic depressive I understand why because there are manias and then there are depressions and the manias are wonderful for her and the depressions are absolutely dreadful I mean even her eyes go out you know I can see it her eyes just go and she's fought that for most of her life I think and I can see now that some of the things she did were on a mania I mean, marrying a Moroccan bodybuilder and having him tattooed on your backside is quite, (laughs) you know, it's quite eccentric behaviour. But the way she was with me, she was very aware. I'm not not a depressive, but I'm an OCD sufferer and an anxiety sufferer. She was very aware that I needed to focus on other things because I think in my case, my work is a, a massive diversion. Work has always been a diversion. Schoolwork has been a diversion. Real work, as in going to work, has been a diversion. If I sit on my own for too long, I start to create alternative 
catastrophizing worlds, and I, I need a diversion in life. You know, it can be watching a great TV show, it can, but I do need a diversion. So I've gone off the subject of my mother, brilliantly. I said to her, I'm going to write this book, and she was, there, there was lots of things I've left out of the original diaries, because... As you would. Yeah, you don't want it. Not about me, but you don't... I mean, I put cardboard cock in. I don't really give a toss, you know. But uh, if you haven't read the book and you haven't done about cardboard cock, you should. But I left a lot of stuff out, and that was really important to leave stuff out because people are still existing in the world, and you don't want to affect them. Like, you, want, you, want to re, you want people to look back on it and think, ah, oh, you know, that was a good time. You know, you don't want to think, why did you write that about me? Yeah, that was going to be my next question because I've always, I've been a lifelong diarist as well, but the idea of them being published unabridged is a bit frightening. Mm. So obviously there was a process at some point going through it and deciding, right, no, that's just a bit too There's a personal. huge editing process because there's not just diaries, there's letters, there's sheets of A4, and I brought them all together. Yeah, it came down to this question. If the person was sitting in front of me now, would I reminisce about that with them? Could I mention it to them without them being hurt? And would it hurt them now to mention that then? And if the answer was, you know, if I was okay on all that, then I'd, then I'd put it in. But so, sometimes it was completely a no-brainer. There's nobody about from that time I don't feel affectionately about. And then 99% of people I'm still in touch with. So... I just wouldn't want to hurt anyone. I feel affection towards, you know, nearly, by the Green Lane twats. I feel affection, to, and again, they're, the, they're the, the kind of bullies in the book. But they, you know, there were lots of those. I feel huge affection towards the people in the book. And I don't want to, I don't, wouldn't want to upset anybody from that time. It's a very, very special time in my life, so I don't want to upset anyone. Hmm. And I can imagine they are also kind of pleased to have a part of their life recorded for posterity well, as well. The, the feedback from my friends has been lovely. I mean, really touching. Some of it, because people who say, I didn't know you felt that way at the time, and I wish I had known. I would have tried to give you a hug, but you would have repelled it, which is correct. Mm. Um, <laughs> very, very right. But very, very lovely and touching. And But my school friends, I'm, we're, I'm very lucky. We just had this year at school that was just lovely. Mainly, we all got on, and we had such a laugh. It was semi-Enid Blyton because it was a girls' school and we had a common room and we did silly things and it was it was just... I mean, it was my absolute little sanctuary, really, school, and I still see it that way. And when I go back there, I feel a deep sense of, like, safety in that place. And I can't really explain it, but I could just sit there happily in there and, and feel totally at ease. Now, I know for a lot of people, school isn't that, you know that's where their bullying occurs but that wasn't my experience my bullying happened on the way home from school mm. not at school I never had to worry about going into school you know it was it was an absolute little by the time when I hadn't done my history homework and you know I was about to get bollocked <laughs> um you know it was in my little sanctuary so I still see it that way did you always intend to publish the diaries that you kept at the time or was it just some random thing where you just found them one day tell you exactly what happened. I was about to bin all of them. They were in our spare room in Derby. Everything was about to go in the bin. And why were you going to chuck them away? Just because you'd moved on? Didn't Just want to moved on and was at a different stage in my life. How old was I? I was like 30, 30, 31. And I hadn't looked at them and they just sat there in the, in the carrier bag and I just 
they'd gone for me. And literally, my husband came in and said, well, whoa, what are they? You know, we've been married two or three years. I said, they were my teenage diaries in my diaries. There's loads of them. I said, yeah, and there's bits of paper and poetry books. <laughs> oh, God. There's a separate poetry book, which I remember at the time thinking, I am Philip Larkin, this will be published. Yes, I had a separate poetry notebook too. And I, I was convinced I was an enormous poetic talent. <laughs> and if I'm being honest, there's still part of me that does think I'm an in potential... If I can just get it right... <laughs> which should, will never happen. Should we, a, <laughs> we should have a poetry slam. Teenage Phil versus Teenage Ray. That'd be hilarious. Well, um, Mine's all Sylvia Plath sort of stuff. Well, mine is like either a bit Wendy Cope or it goes into the surrealist movement because my mum was sorting through the cupboard and she said, Rachel, I found this bizarre thing and it's called I Am The Meat. What? It's called I Am the Meat, and she started reading it. And I have to have your mum discover your, you know, this is on a A4 piece of paper. And there's a pic, there's, there's there was a picture of a chop, a drawing of a chop, like a lamb chop. So, mum, I am the meat. Mum is the meat. Mum is the oven. <laughs> I am the meat, or something completely off its face. And mum is reading, and this is not long ago. There's still stuff being discovered. Mum is reading this to me. I said, Can you just burn it? Can you just burn it? <laughs> Take it to the sink. Burn it. It's got to go. It's over. it's over. No, but anyway, I was just about to get rid of them. And husband Kev said, no, we, we, I read him out of it. And he went, that's, that's brilliant. We should do that on air. So we were doing a radio show, a breakfast show together at the time. So we just started reading very sanitised bits on air. So it was all the boy stuff. There was, there was and, a, and a bit of the fat stuff. There wasn't any mad stuff. You can't tackle that with any decency at ten past eight on a family show you know going to school in the morning so it was very sanitized excerpt but the reaction to that was unbelievable people were on the edge of the sea that sounds really ridiculous but they were they would listen they'd really want to listen to it the next part of it so I kind of knew that I had something that people were interested in and from that I kind of put everything together and wrote it up yeah, and that's, that's where it comes from. And my husband is to thank, really, because they were literally about to go in the bin. So up until this point, you'd been working in radio? Well, no, actually, I'd been, a, I'd been in radio, and just in radio, and I'd been a copywriter, I'd been the advertising person. Are you looking for a new car? I'd been doing that. <laughs> <laughs> They'd look no further. That's what I'd been doing. I'd been doing advertising, copywriting, with a team, uh, which was... A real laugh. It was a real giggle. We, we were sort of allowed to get away with murder, really. Because you, we were creative teams. So and you, you met Ronan Keating once, didn't you? Uh, right? Oh, we met... We, when we were presenters, we met all sorts of people on a private jet for Westlife. That was an experience. And this is where you understand the pressures of fame. I don't, I don't mean... I mean Westlife at that level fame. Like you've got 30,000 people going, Brian, Brian, Brian! <laughs> shouting Brian McFadden's name and saying, get out of the way, you bitch, you can't see it. But like, say, because I was with the band. Um, you know, we met we met all sorts of people. I mean, but it's weird because you see, you see the process of fame. I never forget having to form a protective ring around Gareth Gates. And this was when he was at, Pop, we're doing Pop Idol. And, that, and that's always really stuck with me because it's a very cruel game, the pop business. 
God, I sound like, really, like Louis Walsh. About <laughs> <laughs> a really bad poor man's Louis Walsh. But it was fascinating. It's fascinating to see that side of things. So, yeah, I did advertising for about six years and I was a breakfast presenter for about seven years. But I think I've done every job in a radio station going over the years, bar manage one. So writing was always just an outlet for, for yourself uh, to start with. Yeah, I did English literature at university, which initially I found quite hard because books had always been a real pleasure and you have to start dissecting books. And that's really tough. That's, dis- that's really tough. And looking at Shakespeare with a Marxist standpoint. Oh, yeah. What? I didn't read for pleasure for some time while I was doing my English degree. The, the weird, that's exactly right. And the weird thing is, is that uh, about for about a year after coming out of university, I didn't read a fiction book. I almost couldn't bear to. And then the, the fiction book that got me back, in, back into fiction, and I just want to thank him, Jonathan Coe's What a Carve Up. And I read it, and I, I thought, I'm back. I'm back! Yes, they're back! Books are back on the list. Yeah, for me it was Harry Potter. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah and you, you feel a deep sense of gratitude for them giving you back that escape. Because mm. I'd lost that. And it, just books became something that you went, oh, yes, I can see what they're trying to achieve. Yes. What, what about the themes? Yeah, the themes. And, the, where were, and I'll never forget the first lecture I went to, and never forget, was about Turn of the Screw. And the lecturer, I can't remember her name, she said, yes, and you'll notice that the tower has a phallus-like structure. It's a fucking tower! <laughs> <laughs> and I remember looking round, thinking, this woman's saying that the, the woman had a cock fantasy. She's seeing ghosts. I'm like, am I the only one here? That, you know, I remember so... Nobody was, like, you know, writing down. I thought, no, I've got to get my head around the fact that, you know, we're dissecting literature, and it's not a cock anymore. It's a Freudian phallus protection and and you know i never forget that because it really perturbed me really perturbed me but once i got into it it took me about a year to get into it and i really i really enjoyed it i loved my degree but like yeah literature was spoiled afterwards but no i'd always written sorry Ronnie Corbett again. This is why Tom has the. No, Tom, don't get rid of this stuff it's gold don't get rid of this stuff it's gold gold. gold. it's gold let it let let people catch up Wednesday the 31st of December, 11.35am. Weirdo Jen just invited me to her mum and dad's New Year party. No point even asking mum if I can go. I'm still getting the semi-silent treatment, mainly because the fish tank snails have also now died. 2.43pm. Dr Phil's book is big on families and people being good parents. My mum definitely has not read this book. The fact is, I don't even know who my actual real dad is. No one will talk about him, and all I ever get from mum is, Robert's been around since you were six months, Hattie. That's what a real father does. And then I have to stop asking because mum starts welling up. But I need to know! What about family diseases and conditions that can be passed down, mum? And how big were my other grandma's breasts? And will mine ever get that big? These are vital questions! 8.05pm just ask mum what my real dad's surname is. She said, Hattie, honestly, I don't think this is the right time to be discussing this. When I said, when will be the right time? She yelled, well, never during casualty for a start. 9.27pm. Casualty is finished and it's still not the right time apparently. I'm not stupid, I know why. It's because mum thinks if she gives me a surname, I can find him in a second on Google. She'd never say that though, but it's true. 
Bet it's a better name than Moore. I've had to endure so many craptacular Moore jokes through my mum giving me her surname. Jack Pearson and his posse of pukesters once sang Britney Spears' Gimme Moore at me for an entire lunch break. Only they sang Gimme Moore, not. 10.32pm. It's 10.32pm and everyone in this house is in bed. It's New Year's Eve. This family is a miracle as it is both dysfunctional and dull. 11.12pm. Gran just rang. She's at an over 60s party. She's on vodka jellies because they are easy to handle at her age. I asked her who was bringing her home. She said she hadn't decided yet, but not to worry as she'd put her name and address on her dentures if she gets lost. All I want is someone who is mental who gets me. Dad, come and save me! I'd always written, I didn't know at the time, but for therapy, for pleasure. I remember writing stories about uh, rival fish and chip vans, ice cream vans. I'd always written and I'd really enjoyed writing. And I'd, I enjoyed seeing the look of my own writing as well. That gave me a lot of pleasure, my handwriting. And I just enjoyed it. And I've always loved books. I don't remember a time I didn't love books. From Ladybird books, Mr Men. I still think Mr Men are works of genius literature. If you just follow the story arc, they're fantastic in, in, in miniature. Yeah, I've always loved that process of being able to throw your thoughts on a page. That to me is just, it's heaven. I can't believe I get, get to do it for a living. I just love it. What was the process then once you had My Mad Fat Teenage Diaries sort of laid out and all ready to go? You'd already had some interest because of your breakfast show. Oh, from the public, yeah, but not yeah, from the writing world. But not world. from the writing world. I had to approach agents like everybody else. I mean, with respect to me, it was only on, you know, Ram FM and Leicester. We're not talking national radio. We're talking. I wasn't. I didn't have any presence. You wouldn't know unless you were in that marketplace. You wouldn't know who Ray was, and you wouldn't know who Ray Earl was anyway, because you know. It was a matter of organising it, putting it together, linking it all together so it, it, so it made sense. Because obviously from that time, I wasn't very well for some of it, so some interests made no sense at all, because they were literally mad. I keep using literally in the wrong way, but they were... <laughs> they were they, sorry. Edit that time, just put a word in, just so... <coughs> basically, <coughs> your voice. So it, it's different to writing a fiction book, because you've got all the material there, and you, you're writing it up. But you have to write up so it makes sense. And, and obviously edit it to get rid of things that are going to hurt people, particularly my mum or particularly, you know, somebody else that, you know, I, I don't want to hurt in any way. So it was a huge editing job, a huge editing job, really. That was the difficult part, deciding what to put in and what not to put in, really. Did you have to, like, embellish anything for dramatic purposes? No. If anything, I had to go the opposite way, cut it out. Oh, right, so it was too dramatic then. Yeah, some things were great. Stories involving other people. I mean, they were fabulous. Mm. But in you terms had to think, of dramatic. Well, yeah, but they're fabulous, but they're real people. Yeah. You know, you're not talking about a fictional character. You can do what you like to. You're talking about somebody there who's still living and breathing with a profession, mm. with a family. So, you know, and there was one thing that Kev and I, and I used to discuss it with Kev, because he's very, my husband, he's very sage with things like this, and he, he wanted to keep something in, and I wanted to keep something out. And he said, no, you should put it in because of this, and, and I knew I shouldn't, and I was right. Ah. But it was brilliant. It's brilliant. But 
it wouldn't have been right to put that in. It would have been great for the story, but it would have been absolutely wrong to put it in. Even more now with hindsight, I can see that that was the right decision. So I think I made the right decisions. It was tough because obviously you want, you know, you want a great story and you want to talk about stuff that affects people. But like I say, these are real people, so you don't want to mess up lives. No. Especially not with people you either love now or you love as part of your life. And we'll all, you know, there's people that are not in your life, but you look at the, look back on them with great fondness and great affection and you perhaps haven't spoken to them for a very long time but they were of a time and they were lovely I've got a few people like that and I don't think I'd even like to see them now because it was of a time mm. but that's not because they've upset me in any way it's just because they were of that time well that's kind of how I felt yeah. was there anyone like um the green lane bullies where you just thought no I, I, I don't care I'll just write what I like green lane Twats. Twats. Twats, sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Sorry, the green lane twats. <laughs> well, that's what they were. They were, they were bullies. Sorry, that's, that's bang on. That's the a, that's a right description. The green lane twats are interesting because they weren't well, just one set of people and they're not now. They, I think they still exist. And the green lane shop scenario is interesting because there's a school there, the passage comes down and you can't see who sat there till right at the end. So it's a blind corner of bullying. I pretty much said what they said. I mean, they said worse. I'm, I think I don't record in the diaries as bad as they got, to mm. be honest. You know, some things at the time are too painful. To, it, it, writing helps, or it doesn't help. You're not, sometimes you don't want to even think, talk, write about what you've gone through it's not going to help at that time it might help in a week two weeks it might never help if it's not going to be therapy to write it down then I wouldn't have wrote it down at the time those books were, were therapeutic they weren't about having a a record of the time they weren't like a Thatcher diary and you know I invaded the Falklands today and you know they weren't you know it wasn't like that it was about therapy so if it wasn't going to help me therapeutically, I wouldn't have written it down. But I remember them as even worse hmm. than they were, if that makes sense. I wouldn't want revenge on them, though. I wouldn't want revenge on them. No, what would that achieve? Hmm. I don't think they've got... I, they're not Sir Alan Sugar. They haven't got amazing lives. They're not Sir Richard Branson. They're not titans of industry. They're probably in really crappy, hateful jobs. And what, what did they come from? Did they come? Why were they out at night so late and so young? Mm. Now, what were they escaping themselves? This is obviously an adult looking at it, but what what did they come from? They might have come from something horrific. Mm. So I try to look at it with those eyes, with more understanding. Yes, there's a part of me that wants to go up and punch them, mm. buggers. But there's the older part of me thinks, well, you know, like I say, these aren't multimillionaires, successful people contributing to the world. They're probably quite miserable. So, mm. I'm not really a vengeful person. So you got your agent. Yeah. And then what happened? I got my agent, who is wonderful, Eve, and she sent it out. And we got interest pretty much straight away. I went to meet with Hodder, Nicola at Hodder, who's lovely. And she just loved it, she got it. She got it. It's very important to me that people get it. And she got it. 
Um, and when I say get it, they understand what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to do, and she she got it. And that was 2006, and it came out in 2007. And great reaction to it, fantastic. So the, then this gave birth to a whole new career for you, Ray Earl, well, YA author. Yeah, well, yes. Well, the book originally was, it's very rude, as you know. Um... <laughs> And it was kind of intended for an adult audience, really. But obviously, teenagers picked it up, and they they got it. They loved it. It was that. Well, I didn't realise it. A lot of people are going through it now, and they, you know, they they were experiencing it now, and it, it talked to them, it spoke to them, and it spoke to people from all across the eras. So that was wonderful. Got reaction from all sorts of ages. Yeah, and then I then I basically moved abroad, which stopped writing for a while. Then I got pregnant, which I didn't think I could get pregnant, and that stopped writing completely because I could barely form a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) You know, literally, adverts on telly were making me sob hysterically, and I really couldn't form a sentence. I was, you know, I burnt my computer out looking at YouTube because I didn't sleep either. And I, I had a Sony Vion and literally I burnt it out. It just died because I was spending my life watching YouTube videos till like three in the morning, not being able to sleep. And I couldn't write. About seven, eight months after Harry was born, I started writing Hattie. Because I knew I wanted to write about the teenage experience, the early teenage experience. But not from my perspective, from, you know, it's a completely, completely different perspective, mm. completely different. And I had these characters in my head and I wanted to write. And I, yeah, I wrote, and I love Hattie. I love writing Hattie. She's an utter joy to write. And Gran. Cause, I love the Gran. Well, Gran is Gran's my... hilarious. Gran's my mum. You know, I just sometimes get on the phone to mum and just write down her stories, you know, and slightly change them. Did your mum actually send a dirty joke to her? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. That happened. <laughs> the town where I live is the greatest place for stories... Because it's a small town and it's in Lincolnshire and it's kind of, it's always been kind of a universe on its own. People send to stay in Stafford. You get the most amazing stories. I mean, gossip is, mum gets on the phone, we can have half an hour of, she's the greatest storyteller. And when she goes to me, my God, you'll never guess what. I know I'm in for the best conversation ever. (laughs) (laughs) And I just sit back and I just enjoy because... The way she tells the story is superb. Well, today, so-and-so came in, and I said, and they said, and then they did, oh, and, oh, and, and I'm enthralled, because she's absolutely, oh, it's brilliant. It's just, it's better than telling. It's fantastic. So, Granny's part is about 95% my mother. <laughs> yeah, so she, she lets, Hattie lets me just be, tell great stories. And I love that. I love Hattie for that. She and she lets me explore teenage life in a in a more uncomplicated way because mine was very complicated and very very obviously with mental health issues, very very complicated. And Hattie just lets me be funny basically without any terrible dark bits. Mm. So is there plan for Hattie the TV series as well? You never know. You never. Know. I mean, the thing is with TV, it ta- it ta- can take a while. I mean. Tiger brought my um, series quite a few years ago, and it's you know it's just happening now. Great TV takes a while, so I just don't know that could happen. Just totally depends. Totally depends. I'd love it to happen, but it totally depends. 
So you've moved from diarist slash memoirist essentially to, to fiction writer now. So Well, actually, I'm doing both. Well, you're doing both. Mm. Um, so I'm just finishing off the second part of Hattie, and then I shall write the second part of my diaries. Oh, right. So is this like late teens, early 20s? This is late teens. This is 1991. So that's what I'm going to be doing after Hattie. I keep writing projects separate, though. I don't want to get... I'm not a multitasker at all. Mm. So I like to give everything its absolute 100% focus due. <laughs> I, can't, I can't write two at a time. No way. I have to... I completely lack the ability to multitask. Yeah. You have to be in the zone. I have to be in the voice. I have to be in the voice. I have to be in Hattie's voice and Hattie's people around her. Or I have to go back to me at 18, 19... Going through the diary stuff is, it can be very, I mean, it sounds positive, very, very painful because I'm reading me at a time when I wasn't well. And actually, I'm more unwell in these books because I, I left school and, like I said, school was a sanctuary for me and I'd lost my big safety net. I'd mm. lost it. And that was horrifically frightening. I think a lot of people could relate to that. Oh, though. God. And, and I'm somebody that needs routine, you know, and this is the this is the the challenge of being a writer because as you know we, we work for ourselves, so I have to I make myself go to work at a certain time every day and I make myself finish at a certain time, even if I write three quarters nonsense it doesn't matter the quarter that I get from it is great you can't say I'm not feeling like writing today that's not going to work you never feel like writing you know you've got to make yourself do it. That leads on very nicely to my next question about your writing routine. Maybe you could describe it, a typical day for us. Take Harry to school, because people say, oh, you've got a toddler, you can write while he plays. Shut up. Shut <laughs> up! <laughs> Who are you? What toddler have you got? And then people are, oh, you can, you can just play in the garden while you write. Shut up! <laughs> Harry goes to school three days a week, nursery three days, which he loves. So I'll take him about nine... I will have some toast and watch the news. I have to see the news, perhaps it's a British thing. I'll start work at 10 and I'll finish at 4 and pick Harry up. Now, because I've got the concentration span of a gnat, there might be me walking around talking to myself part of the day, <laughs> <laughs> pretending that somebody else is here, pretending that I'm being interviewed pathetically because I haven't grown out of my teenage fantasies of being a pop star or a three-day eventer. You know, that won't be solid writing, but it'll be pretty much me writing. You know, I'm not doing anything else. I like to write the manuscript, the rough first draft, and then I like to print it out, and then I like to write all over it. I've got like a little file and it, I will print out my manuscript and I'll write all over it and then I'll go back to it. And that will process will take it through two or three times. Funny enough, I can edit and see better once I'm reading it through on a piece of paper still yeah, rather same. than on a screen. Mm. Don't quite know how that works, but it, it just does. Mm. You just pick up more. You pick up more. Paper. You read it like a book. Mm. I still like to read on paper. I've not joined the Electronic Revolution, I have to say. No. I like books. I like the smell of books. I like the feel of a book. I like the way you, you go into it. I, I just like books. I like the feel of a book in my hand, even the texture. And when I go into a bookshop, I, I know it's weird, but I will sniff them. It's not just the... I, just, I, I stand and inhale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I, openly, I openly sniff, I don't care. Um, 
I, 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 and I, I'm saying with paper, paper to me has a magic quality and I just want to see it there and feel mm. it there and scribble on it there and feel, it gives me a control of it, it gives me a control of it, if mm. that makes sense. So are you like um, some other writers I've interviewed where you, like you have your little writing studio cottage out in the backyard, do you not have internet access out there so you can't get distracted? I do, because it's the wireless actually stretches out there, which is handy if I want to send something off. I haven't been on Facebook hardly. I tr really try to be disciplined. So I haven't been on ha Facebook hardly at all because I just get sucked into doing statuses on Facebook and playing with my friends. So I don't I don't mean playing dual feet, whoever shite they put on. <laughs> I don't mean that. I'm not into that. I can't. I haven't got time for that. But, you know, talking to people. Twitter is even more seductive in a way because it seems quick and it's not because then you end up in... Conversations. You end up yeah. in conversations, and when people tweet me nice stuff, I do like to tweet back. But I tend to leave that till night now, so when I'm in front of the telly, when I can kind of do it, you know, and it, and it doesn't eat up. But then my husband minds at me because, as I say, I can totally block other things out. So he's saying something to me like, "Shall we get a mortgage?" And I'm like, "Hang on, just replying to bacon roll two two two, you know." And then you know it, it gets quite annoying. But you have to set. You have to be tough you have to set and i'm not i haven't got the complete master of this please don't think that i have but you have to be quite good with time management and please don't think i always leave partly things to the last minute i find a little bit of pressure does me a lot of good yeah, not completely i couldn't leave an entire book to the last week that would be suicidal <laughs> and crap you'd write crap but i can i can i put a little bit of pressure on myself i like a little bit of pressure I'm um, I, I don't know why it is i think it's just the way i'm built I was the same with essays at uni. Yeah, I was the same with exams as well. It's like, oh, there'd be no point me Cram. doing anything yeah. two weeks before. It'd just be like the last couple of days. Yeah, absolutely. If I haven't learned something as I've gone along, I can't learn it in uh, two weeks. Mm. I have to learn it to go along. I have to write it to go along. I keep copious notes. I have notebooks coming out of my arse, full of things that people have said, ideas. I've got about 20... I've got a Pulitzer Prize winning idea, but I'm not good enough to write it yet. And when I tell people about it, I've told very few people about it, I tell people, you can't write that, you've not been there. Yeah, but Lewis Carroll didn't go to bloody Wonderland and he wrote about it. And, you know, that's always my thing. So I've got ideas coming out my backside. Whether I'll ever get to write them or not, I don't know. But I do, I do keep notes. Writers should write. That's what, when people say to me, I want to write, I say, well, write. That's the best thing you can do, write. Mm. Write what you see in a day. Diaries are a great place to start, actually. Mm. Rant. You know, if you've got a crap boss, if you've got an annoying partner, if you just feel, just write. It's therapeutic, and there might be something in there that's just a jewel, a gem, you know. Mm. What are the books that have had the most influence on you and your style, would you say? Well, obviously, Adrian Mole. Yeah. And it seems like the obvious one to say, but I have to say I have a very distinct memory of picking up on the Adrian Mole hype, going to my school's fiction library and it being out. And we couldn't always afford... There was always money for books, but, you know, if you could get one for free from the library, then you'd got to get one for free from the library. And I remember the book being out and having to wait for it. And I remember reading it and thinking it was a work of genius. And I still think Sue Townsend is probably the most, one of the most underrated talents Britain has ever produced. It's because she's funny. Mm. Funny doesn't get the, 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 the attention it deserves, because it, it's funny, it makes us laugh. 
But if you read all those books, they are satire. They're not just teenage life, they're satire of the most sharp, sharply observed. She's an observer. And that's something that I love and admire. And I think she's just beyond wonderful. And the latest one, I just sobbed. I, it, it was, it's everything that I would like to be as a writer. It's hilariously funny. It's thought-provoking. It, it's sharp. It carries dark themes with, with a lightness of touch that doesn't demean them. But I just, I just mind enthusiasm for Sue Sanders. I mean, it's been a relationship over 30 years now. So I just love her. Uh, writers I love, Jonathan Coe I love, he's somebody I've read everything of, he's another person that I just admire um, immensely. I don't write like her but Margaret Atwood, anything she writes is worth reading. I wish I did write like her but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> yeah. um, I have to say as a, as a teenager, I was, and, and it's like that, not, not to demean it, but there's somebody who got me into, into thinking about books. Orwell was huge, and still is. I could read 984 a million times. I have probably read it a million times. Who else? Oh, let me have a look at my bookcase. No, these are like a third of them there. Have there been any other big influences in your work? Like, music is a is a, one of your biggest loves. Oh, God, you see, this is where... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, to, to go back to Pulp, I remember when I first heard the His and Hers albums, I thought it was the first time that somebody had actually taken life, a life I recognised into song and something like Acrylic Afternoons and it's just poetry in song, it's just a situation, a circumstance, a life in song. Same with babies, it's just, and the trouble is because it's dismissed as music or pop music, and it's not pop music but whatever, then you, people don't fully appreciate it but yeah there is a, there's a beauty there, there's an art there that I totally find inspirational. I love a story song. I've always loved a story song. From Roger Whittaker's The Last Farewell. I love anything that has a story in it, beginning and end. Just love it. Yeah, I did just say Roger Whittaker, and I'm unashamed. And you should probably be thinking, who the hell is Roger Whittaker? Are you the greatest storyteller of the 1970s? I, po poets as well, Larkin, hugely. I mean, I love they fuck you up, your mum and dad. That whole, Yes. I love Brilliant. I love that poem. I can't remember what it's actually called. What's it called? I can't remember. I adore it because it has that it has the dark themes but the lightness of touch and mm -hmm. I love that because that that's lets us approach really dark stuff in a way that's accessible and I think that's really something I really do admire. Do you follow Philip Larkin on Twitter? No. There's Philip Larkin quotes on Twitter and they're they're brilliant. No, I will do. Yeah. I'm too busy looking at Philip Schofield. Oh, right. <laughs> Not anything wrong with Schofield, to add, but yeah, I will. I will uh, yeah, I'll look at that. Actually. No, it's brilliant. I'll send you the link. They're very good. I also follow Sylvia Plath on Twitter. So. I'm not an enormous Plath fan, I have to say. In my teenage years and early twenties, I totally identified with her, but I've grown out of that really angsty period and have sort of moved on to a lighter, brighter place. So, which she never, unfortunately, got to. So. No. I think music was covered my angstiness. The Smiths was my Sylvia Plath, I think. Mm -hmm. I think everybody had a, 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 an outlet for their angsty, an artistic outlet for their angsty. Well, one of the things that I noticed that you said quite a bit 
when Mad Fat Diary, um, the TV series, came out, was that you said that it's amazing how something in your life that got you absolutely crucified when you were younger is something that actually turns out to be your meal ticket later yeah, in life. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, is that still very much your philosophy about your writing and your, your career? Yeah, it's kind of... I did tweet it, actually. It's kind of what makes you odd, makes you stick out. It's also what can make you... what can be the best thing about you. And I don't want to say... Because I've really struggled with mental health. And, you know, at bad times, it, it's still a struggle. And it's still a fight. I don't have such bad days as I used to. But a bad day is a, is a bad day. You know, for all of us. I don't want to make light of it. And I'll, you know, when you're, do, when you're approaching these things, you're very aware that people are still going through it. And you don't want to make light of that because it's, it's, it's horrid, it's horrible. But yeah, I do feel that, that those things that I used to feel were so dreadful and so embarrassing about me, yeah, they've, they've been the things that have allowed me to do the best stuff in my life. Because if you're frightened of opening your front door and you're frightened of the world and you can conquer that, then you think to yourself, well, I'll do a marathon. I'll go abroad. I'll write a book. I mean, who cares? Who cares if I've been laughed at, got over that. So once you've got over that feeling, and you've not got over it, but learned to handle it, because that, that impulse is always there, but it just, you learn that a thought is just a thought, and the thought passes, and it can be replaced with other thoughts, and that thought can be used to fund something else, and they are just thoughts. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, real things. They are thoughts. Yeah. And yeah, that has allowed me to do some stuff that I never thought I'd be able to do. If there was... Anything you could say to your 17-year-old self, what would it be? Give yourself a break. Give yourself a break. Get more therapy. Stop eating Twixes, they're not the answer. Stop putting matches on in your arm. It's not the answer. And when you're tan in later life, you're going to look like an idiot. You look like a leopard on my arm. <laughs> and, and I know people, that's, that's, that sounds funny, but you know, cause and effect, you know, th th my coping strategies were not always healthy ones, and I look at my arm now, and it, people don't see it, but I see it, and I think, oh, sad that you felt the need to do that, you hated yourself so much that you did that, and it makes me think, you know, get help sooner, don't be frightened to say I'm doing this, because I, I kept a lot from people, because I was so embarrassed, and I was so... I thought I was so crazy. I mean, there was less knowledge about things those days, less knowledge about self-harm, less knowledge about mental illness, especially adolescent mental illness. And I was very frightened about being taken away and, and, and that sort of thing, which is a very legitimate fear. But just give yourself a break and get more help would be my thing to my 17-year-old self. Because I wasn't... And stop eating Twitter. I wasn't even enjoying the Twixies by the fourth one. <laughs> they, you know, they were just—they'd lost their appeal, really. So that'd be my advice to myself. Mm. But it's hard. It is. It's hard when I see these letters. You know, when they would say, "Write a letter to your sixteen-year-old self." That's tough 
because you've got all that hindsight and life is such that you take on so much knowledge every day that you don't even know you're taking it on mm. you can't you can't acknowledge it your brain would explode but you are so at 42 nearly you you know you you emotions are very different by experience i think it's very difficult to go back mm. very difficult you can only move forwards really yeah if somebody if i didn't have my diaries i couldn't recreate my 17 year old self i couldn't I couldn't touch what she felt. Mm. I can remember, but I, it's all written down now. I can't. I can't get near it. She was. She was very poorly, and it's very difficult to to even think. I thought that badly, even on a bad day now, if that makes sense. Mm. It doesn't touch that seventeen-year-old. And so, what would be your advice to? other young writers who would perhaps like to share what they've learned with the world the way you have? Well, there's blogging these days. I mean, you, obviously, you're the champ blogger. Um, <laughs> you are. Hardly. Yes, you are. There's blogging. But here's my thing about blogging, and you can tell me. As soon as you've got an audience, you have an awareness that you've got an audience with blogging. So it's very different to writing. I'm always getting asked, has, has blogging replaced a diary? No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. Far from it. No. Because as soon as... I'm not saying you can't be honest in a blog. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying as soon as you've got an audience, you're aware you've got an audience. And that's very different. You can blog. You can write. You can buy some really nice stationery and you can write and write and write. And what you do is you keep writing. You write every day because the more you write, the better you get. And there are some people who are, I'm sure, there are some people who are good enough, and this has a precedent, to be published at 17. They are that good now. They are that good now. And there are some people, they won't be good enough till they're 25 or 30 or 35. One of my favourite poets, poets didn't start writing until she was 50, and she's fantastic. You know, you don't, you, you just keep on writing. And here's the thing. There's lots of people who say they're going to write a book, but they don't. Write. Write. Start it today. Make yourself do it. So a thousand words a day is 31,000 words in a month. Three months it's a book. Write. Every day. Make yourself write. Say six to eight is your writing time. Make yourself do it. That's my advice. And don't be frightened of doing something new. If it doesn't fit to the structure of what you think, then it doesn't matter. Just write. Is that really simplistic advice? No, it's brilliant. It's a perfect ending. It's just, it? just people say, you know, you should do this and you should do that and you should read this book and read that book. No, it starts with writing and it ends with writing. And everything else you can learn. Rayel, thank you very much for being my guest on Bookends today. <laughs> I got the giggles, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I can't do <laughs> It's when people say We're that. We're going to keep this I, in. I suddenly think, oh God. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry, and I've only, you've only had one cup of coffee in an hour and a half. You've been here, so I just want to apologise for. I haven't given you a biscuit. I'm crap. Yeah, right, bring, bring on the biscuits. We're going to go and have biscuits now, listeners. Thank you, Ray. But Vitty's plain chocolate in my house. <laughs>